This is Vote Her In, a collaboration between Two Broads Talking Politics and author Rebecca Sive. We're doing a series of episodes focusing on women artists whose work or context is political. On this episode, we're speaking with ceramist Jen Allen and Chetsani Elaine Dean. You can find a video of this conversation at twobroadstalkingpolitics.com. If you listen to the audio, you may want to check out the images on twobroadstalkingpolitics.com to follow along with the conversation. Enjoy. everyone. I am Kelly, and this is Vote Her In. Vote Her In is a collaboration between Two Broads Talking Politics and author Rebecca Sive. Uh, we originally started to elect our first woman president. Uh, we didn't get quite there, but we've elected our first woman vice president, so uh, we're calling that a huge success. <laughs> Uh, and we're we're all ready to uh, celebrate that. Uh, so I am going to turn it over to Rebecca now to introduce our guest for today. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, and welcome everybody on this eve of Thanksgiving. As Kelly said, we started out with our uh, the campaign that so many of us participated in to elect a woman president. We moved on quite excitedly to uh, support Kamala Harris as the first woman in the Oval Office. And we'll continue to celebrate that. But underlying all of our discussions is a discussion and a concern and commitment to learning about women who lead, women who do creative things in the public sphere, who show what it means to be an activist in their respective uh, professions. And so as I was thinking about our post-election time and particularly about Thanksgiving, a favorite holiday of mine, um, I thought it would be really cool if we could talk with various women artists, uh, those who do have a political message of sorts, a social justice commitment, uh, so that they could share with us their views on broadly construed the idea of vote her in. And uh, we began a series with uh, two pals who do Dead Feminists. If you haven't seen that yet, I encourage you to. They're just Chandler and Jessica who do broadsides about uh, important women political figures. And today in our second episode, we're just thrilled, I think I can speak for Kelly as well, uh, to have Jen Allen and Chatsani Elaine Dean with us. Uh, I have known Jen for, I don't know, maybe a, over a decade from when she was a young, aspiring potter. She's gone on to great uh, good fortune in the beauty of her work and her commitment to her work. And in this last year, she expanded to uh, making masks. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be talking about that with her. Uh, Chatsani is a newer uh, friend. Uh, I first learned about her work a couple of years ago, bought a piece of hers, which uh, may be in the slideshow, which really talks about uh, African-American history and fiber and cotton. And what better idea than having the two of you together uh, I want to give credit where credit is due to Jill Foote Hutton, the editor of Studio Potter, who said, why not bring Jen and Chatsani together? So here you are, and welcome, everybody. Uh, we're going to begin by asking uh, Jen and Chatsani each to sort of share in brief a kind of how did they get from where they started to this place, 
and we'll then move on to looking at their work and hearing them talk about it. So welcome. Uh, and um, Jen, why don't you start? We'll just go in alphabetical order. Hi, Paul. Okay. <laughs> um, hi, everybody. I'm Jen, and I'm so excited to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Um, a little bit about myself. So I um, grew up the daughter of a U.S. Fish and Wildlife biologist, and my mother was kind of a craftswoman and also a phys ed teacher. So um, a, kind of a pivotal move in, in my young life was I moved from uh, Atlanta, Georgia, up to Anchorage, Alaska. And I'd say that that, and that was the winter of 91 when I was a freshman in high school. And um, that probably was... Well, I know it was really instrumental in the work that I make. Um, growing up in Anchorage is kind of a melting pot of a city. And um, we were exposed to a lot of um, beautiful Native art up there. And um, I worked at Joanne Fabrics and I started sewing. And then I went to undergraduate school and I started making pots. And I fell in love with ceramics and I never looked back. Um, and then fast forward 25 years, and here I am. I've got, um, after going through undergraduate school, graduate school, I'm now in Morgantown, West Virginia, and I have a studio, which I'm sitting in right now, um, and feel very fortunate to be in this spot and to be able to make work and share it with the world, really. So, yeah, that's a little bit about me. I'm Tony, and I'm from Connecticut, New England. Um, I grew up um, going to Washington, D.C. every summer, and my family's also from northern New Jersey. So that combination of um, constant cultural engagement, I think, you know, growing up in museums um, and, and that aspect of history is something I'm realizing has really informed the way I approach work. Um, my father was a commercial printer. And I grew up going into print shops and, you know, having Pantones around the house and commercial um, printing magazines all over the place. And my mom is in finance, you know, so I spent a lot of time watching her. She got her Series 7, was a stockbroker. So I think I have like, I think I'm seeing now maybe that's where some of the economic aspects uh, come from. Seeing my mother, she takes care of all my financial stuff. Um, so maybe that's where the visual and the and that kind of financial political aspect comes from with what I've seen um, growing up and spending time in D.C. Um, and always really being interested in why I'm able to do what I do. You know, um, what are the things that made it possible, you know, even in this moment, sitting here discussing things um, that are both intellectual, but also come out of my hand and, and material. So I'm interested in those kinds of um, aspects. So related to this, and by way of an introduction to Jen and Chatsani talking about their work, um, I just would say a word about uh, why I think it's so important to hear what they have to say. I think that for those of us who've been political activists for a long time, there sometimes isn't uh, as great a recognition as there ought to be about the role that imagery and uh, the words of artists have as. And so I think that for my own part, I uh, 
started collecting ceramics and some women's textiles and posters and broadsides a long time ago because I felt that uh, I wanted to just record this uh, from the women's activism that I was a part of. And I kind of realized that, you know, this is more than a notion. This is our history together. And so I want to uh, invite you as you listen to Jen and Chatsani to really think about um, the multifaceted way in which we engage politically, in which we engage in social justice causes, in which we even present ourselves here uh, in media uh, uh, as we are doing today. So uh, with that, I think that um, Chatsani, maybe you'll start because your work and goes way back in American history and of course even uh, around the time when people started, so to speak, celebrating Thanksgiving and, and, and what it uh, means. Um, so I invite you to start here and Chatsani will be showing images. Uh, so watch out, here they come. I'll have to go. Oh. Okay, is it full screen? Behaving yes. with do great. Um, so I, did, I made a title image here. If you want to see more of the work and 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 see the materials that are um, that come together to make these pieces, um, there's my website address. And um, I chose these two images in the beginning um, to show me holding cotton, which in every single piece that's in this slideshow is cotton that I grew. I didn't order it from anywhere. Um, already grown. I, I did it. I sowed the seed and, and saw it to its uh, end point. And to prove that, here is me in front of <laughs> some cotton about midsummer. Um, we're just, it's just a baby here, you know, and I had never seen cotton. It wasn't like some big moment I decided to grow it. You know, I came down to the South. That's, you know, we think of the Civil War. We think of all of the, you know, economic aspects of this country. Um, labor. I thought I should participate in that. A lot of what I did was read about it. Um, and I grew up in a place, you know, close to Wall Street that, you know, had the hidden aspects of cotton, you know, and the North was no way less complicit in this, you know, horrific time of enslavement in this country and why it has the wealth it has. I wanted to take some ownership and experience that myself. So the first year, I only grew one variety, which is Sea Island cotton. Um, it's it's the brown cotton that you see in the image on the right. But after that, I, I just decided to grow several different kinds. And the white cotton that you see is called red foliated cotton. There's another cotton in there called Nankeen brown and another one called Arkansas green lint. And as I continue to research cotton, I had no idea how many different varieties there were. And the, the different varieties and strains come out of um, both the British and, and, and colonists trying to grow cotton wherever they could. Um, and part of my reason for going to India for Fulbright research was that before the plantations in the South, India, you know, was really the powerhouse of cotton. You know, people were producing it in their homes from start to finish, but the difference was the cotton wasn't their main crop. It was a subsistence crop. Um, and the and the people trying to colonize, well, India was colonized, but in trying to control the cotton, they could never do that. Um, 
and a lot of the economic aspects or uh, financiers and, and people who are making lots of money off the trade of cotton could see that the situation in young America wasn't going to last with enslaved labor. So I was really interested in all of the attempts, you know, made to grow cotton in different places and have control over it. Um, and how it's, it continues to be, you know, through textiles, a really big industry. Um, so this is uh, the piece on the very left is a, a memory spoon, and that's the piece that's in Rebecca's collection. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm also interested in quilts. Um, the work will always come out of that. I'll never leave that behind. That was for sort of the first place I encountered cotton was, was in quilts. And, and what I was really interested in was the duality of a quilt, that it's both utilitarian, but it also can hold something. You know, it becomes something that's passed on and functions in a different manner. Um, and, I, and I do on purpose leave the cotton in its original form because everything we experience with cotton is from the time it's been transformed. I'm interested in keeping it in its cotton ball form. And when I grew the cotton, I did not know that I was going to do all of this with it. People kept asking me, what are you going to do with it? And I didn't know until I made these pieces and it, it came together. Um, so the wording you see here on these tiles, I these are made by a block printer in India. Um, and that was also part of my research during my Fulbright was to look at textiles and I went to Jaipur and I went to the Anoki Museum of Block Printing. And that's really a tradition that's um, disappearing in India. And so I got back to Varanasi and found myself a, a block carver. He didn't speak any English. I had to really get my Hindi together. I had to like memorize things before I went there to pick up my stamps. But this is my handwriting and he was able to carve it exactly as I wrote. Um, so this is where I just work on these individual tiles and you saw in the piece previously how they all come together. Um, and I've started to expand these tiles more into horizontal formats because now I'm interested in thinking about all these different layers of time and all these different operations and outcomes that come from that one single little ball of cotton in, in trading. And so this is a, another piece that I made, um, and the title is Minge Bushel, and Minge is Dutch for mine. Um, and I've become interested in that use of um, the Dutch language as I look more closely at uh, Sojourner Truth, um, not just for the you know quick February image we get of Sojourner Truth, but you know that she was Dutch and her first language was Dutch and not English. Um, and this is the this is the very first piece. This is like the first batch of cotton um, that I grew that I put together um, with clay. And one thing that I think was really prominent is I'm, I read a lot of the uh, slave narratives and, and, and a lot of them talk about the end of the day bushel and standing in line waiting to see what the weight is going to be of what you picked. Um, and this is very small, so I'm doing something that's really the opposite. I'm in control of the quantity, and I'm in control of what's done after it, after it's um, harvested. And so then these are some 
detail. Um, this was also a piece that Rebecca saw um, in the same exhibition with the spoon. This is outbid, freed without money. Um, and just thinking about, like I said earlier, um, the liberation and the freedom I have and, and the responsibility I have to steward that, you know, um, and not only in my work, but also in my teaching and the way I approach clay and, and the pedagogy I put together in terms of how individuals can find that kind of liberation in the material for themselves. Um, and this is a piece with a very long title. Um, it, and it really, for me, represents the transatlantic diasporic um, and transformative aspects of clay. Um, and I am, I'm thinking about cargo. You know, I, I wrote it in that quote piece that you saw earlier, but but now I'm thinking about that idea of, of um, cargo and, and, and trade, but also of, of people, you know, being enslaved. And uh, this is, I, in the South, I became very interested in the way the food um, reflects the history, this very, the, the complex and full of strife history between, you know, uh, white people and black people and, and how it, it brings them together, but how there was still this kind of hidden, not kind of, but hidden hierarchy, but also clear hierarchy that as someone from the North, I wasn't used to seeing. Um, so I began working with these spoons and, and seeing, you know, in the way that a recipe cooked holds flavor, how do I represent that same thing in a, in a, in a utilitarian object in the way that I'm fascinated with quilts? How do I expand that idea of utility and, and, really express the metaphor that, that exists there. And this was one of the very first memory spoons that I made. And so this is for Georgia Gilmore, who basically um, um, supported the Montgomery bus boycott um, by selling fried chicken and working with other cooks and um, bakers so that, you know, as people were boycotting the bus system, they could still get to work. Um, so she's someone um, that I look to often um, and think about, you know, I don't really have too much, you know, in terms of hurdles to get over. So I think, again, my responsibility is to make sure it's not just me, but everyone can see what that kind of perseverance and, and tenacity and strength is um, that's part of our American history and allows us to, you know, sit here and as Rebecca said, you know, community and under, and it makes us understand even more the importance of, of Kamala Harris being in the White House. I mean, this is, you know, in, in the 60s that, um, you know, Georgia Gilmore made this impact in the civil rights movement and um, it was slow, but we can see now it was steady. Um, so that's my last image. I, did I keep it to time? You did beautifully. It's fabulous. I have to say I'm so glad you ended that way because we do think about Kamala and all of the other uh, women of color who've been elected this year more than in any other year in American history. So there's much to be thankful for tomorrow. Um, Jen, you want to uh, share with us too? Yeah. <clears throat> Let's see.
All right. Okay, are we at full screen? Awesome. Okay, so um, when Rebecca invited me to participate in this talk, um, it mainly was um, based on my more recent kind of political um, activity of making masks. And so I wanted to focus this talk not on my ceramic work, but on kind of the impetus why I'm making um, these masks now. So this is just pulled off of the CDC's website, and it's just giving people, um, you know, ideas of what masks. So this is like propaganda that's on our computer screens that we see all the time, um, telling us the right and wrong way to wear things or do things. Um, <clears throat> and then so I was interested in kind of the history of um, not only masking, but also the history of um, women kind of stepping up for the country in times of need and during war times. Um, and so I was looking back at propaganda posters from World War I. Um, the Red Cross put out this big campaign to get um, women to, to knit their bit. And um, here's a... Yeah, you are, Kelly. <laughs> um and here's an image of a bunch of mask makers during the Spanish flu epidemic. So um, I just found these images really fascinating and uh, timely for um, time we're in now. Uh, and then fast forward to World War II when the Rosie Riveter campaign kind of came out, um, encouraging women to step up and join the defense industry and, again, do their do their part to help the soldiers overseas um, to kind of unite in this way that um, uh, feels more like socialism than anything else to me. Um, and then... Jen, could you hold on one, one sec? Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, I just think that it put everybody on an even playing field and it wanted everybody to participate in the greater good, which I which I really um, try to adhere to in my life. And so um, it just seems like um, it's something that we're asked to do again, again now, but there's a lot of um, divisiveness and um, negativity and it's just hard. Like it seemed during that time, it was it was hard when the war was happening, and then right after there was this um, period of progress, um, and that's what I'm really excited for is what's going to happen um, after COVID. Like I'm, I really feel like there's some kind of big expansive movement that we're just on the cusp of, um, and that to me is really exciting. So um, these are current posters, propaganda posters made by artists today. Um, the one on the, the right is Shepard Ferry, and that he made for the state of Rhode Island. Um, it's a hope and strength poster um, that he made specifically for the COVID pandemic. And then on the left is an artist named Dash Dixon, and I just really loved the imagery um, and the and the text in that. And so um, I did mention like 
after times of war came times of progress. And for me, one of the most exciting times in um, textile history is the is post-war, post-World War II textiles. Um, and here's a sampling of different designers that kind of erupted in, during that time period. Um, and these are ones that I, I mean, I, I looked, I look to get their textiles someday, but pieces of their textiles are so expensive. <laughs> I mean, I, you can see them in museums, in the MoMA, um, the V&A Museum. There's samples of these pieces. So, um, And then fast forward now to contemporary surface design artists. And these are kind of a smattering of people that I um, am really inspired by. They're prints. Um, and the, the list of names is there in case anybody was interested in who made um, the textiles. It is kind of in clockwise from the top left um, with Ann Kell. But, and then I was thinking too about trying to be more responsible with my choices of manufacturers. And so now I'm, I'm diving into this history. You know, I'm, I've spent my entire career dealing with ceramics and ceramic history and, you know, a little bit of textile history thrown in, but never to the extent that I'm going in now. And it's really exciting, but it's also really frightening because I'm, I'm such an adolescent when it comes to, um, into understanding like surface design history. Um, in making my own masks, I do try to source responsible products. So I'm looking at organic products, um, much of which is produced overseas, however. So I did find this brand called the American Made brand. They're in Seattle, Washington. They're, they've only been around for a number of years. Um, but they source their, they source all their cotton um, locally, and they um, they grow it, they harvest it, they spin it, they dye it, everything. They put it on bolts. Everything's done here in the states. So that to me um, felt like a good company to support. Um, so I started buying their fabrics, uh, and then Evalon is a German brand of fabric that is um, a spun bound fabric that I use for kind of the filtration layer inside my masks. And the reason why I wanted to do that um, was because even when I was layering like three layers of cotton, um, I could still see light through it. And so I knew that it wasn't the best filtration that I could get. And so this company makes products for the allergy and asthma industry. They make pillowcases, mattress covers, and so I felt like using their product would be a good fit. You can wash it on high heat. You can dry, you know. Um, and I feel like it it provides that barrier that I wanted, that that extra layer of cotton wasn't giving me. So this is kind of what um, I'm using to make my masks. Uh, most recently, I've been collaborating with a couple of other artists, two of which are clay artists. Um, Meredith Host, who's in the center there, the, the dinner napkin with the fork. She's just recently started creating her own screen printed textiles. And she just sent me um, yards and yards of fabric to make masks from. So I've been making uh, masks out of that. I actually have some I can show you. 
Um, and then Molly Hatch just sent me a bunch of fabric as well. So I'm excited to make some masks out of that fabric. And Bryn Parrott is a wood carver um, who lives in the same town that I live in. And I'm just really excited about her designs on something that is worn. Um, all of these are strong women that have a really, I think, unique and strong voice in their own areas. And I'm super excited to collaborate with them on this series of masks. And here are some of the masks that I've made that are out, of, out in the world. Um, some of these fabrics are some of my favorite designers. William Morris is in there, um, who's, who is a, a giant when it comes to not only the history of textiles, but also um, the history of politics in Britain you know, during the Industrial Revolution. Um, and then, yeah, that's a bunch of people wearing a mask. One of Meredith's is up there too. That blue one up on the top there, right? Yeah, that, that one's her fabric. Right, yeah. right. I'm going to just grab, um, I'm going to stop this sharing because that's the end. And then I'm going to just reach and grab these masks that I have. Excuse me for one sec. I actually realized I have one of Jen's William Morris masks here. I have Molly Hatch. I have John Sonny. But someday we'll have a, a version of Antiques Roadshow where we show uh, an old woman's collection that. of women's art. How's that? Yeah. yeah, this is one of the Meredith pieces here. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Really fun. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, so taking off from that, and Kelly and I had a couple of questions we wanted to talk with you about uh, ideas. And the first one really is what you said a moment ago when you referenced William Morris, that, you know, there's a long history of uh, artists who have political commitment, as we mentioned at the outset, and who sustain that uh, commitment throughout their lives. In contemporary life, there's Judy Chicago, a lot of people know about her, other famous women who have been really strong feminists. And uh, we were curious as to your thoughts about how, as you look ahead, uh, post-pandemic, and we can all be out and about and organizing and talking and demonstrating and whatever we need to do. If you could share with us, and maybe Chatsani, if you would start, how you see your own art plus activism coming together. Um, I think for me, it always really happens in the classroom. You know, it's something that I write into the curriculum. And um also elevating craft, elevating clay, which oftentimes gets co-opted by corporations that wind up putting it into a skew category, you know, and a, um, a lot of young students think they have to meet that standard. And, and, and part of what I, I think I try to do, and sometimes at risk of making students angry with me, is getting them to see they um, have the capacity to be producers and that their ideas are the ones that everyone else is after, not the reverse. You know, so that's, that's something I put a challenge for to myself when I'm teaching and even the way I approach the work myself. You know, how much do you let influence your aesthetic you know, having enough visual literacy to know when something's been watered down and adulterated, you know, 
And so me, for me, it's taking those parts um, of my ancestries that comes out of quilts, that those quilts, you know, as we see in G's Bend, they got great popularity that was co-opted too by like Kathy Ireland or something like that. But that those were women who were in a situation in which they had to fulfill someone else's wishes aesthetically and learn that in, in, a, in a very uncomfortable, untenable environment. And mm-hmm. after doing that, still went home and used whatever was left over and taught resourcefulness by action mm-hmm. in something that we now have categorized as a craft, quilting, you know. Um, so that's where, you know, my role is, is to make sure that, you know, and I'm a woman and especially other young women don't think that that's a lesser form of expression that it's a high form of expression because right. it's high skill, high tech. These women's crafts. You know, so I think, you know, um, I know that seems odd that I don't transform the cotton, but I think in that I'm trying to bring the viewer back to that origin to show about the possibility. You know, it's like when you get that bag of play, everyone gets the same bag. <laughs> you know, so I think, um, you know, and then even thinking about, you know, activists, you, you mentioned William Morris, you know, and even Josiah Wedgwood, you know, uh, dedicated a lot to the abolitionist movement. But then if you look at the aesthetics and you see the table at which the people who are sitting <laughs> shifts completely, you know, yep. the people who use that. So the intention of of the creator then to the people using it there's a huge shift in that because now you're entering into a class situation, you know? So when I make utilitarian wares and the things I'm referencing, I'm, you know, similar. You mentioned you Chicago earlier. I'm, I'm making my own now place settings and space um, in those objects, you know, to evoke, you know, and to say I'm present and, and I'm here now. So. Jen. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, there's been discussion recently, and I know throughout history, but the whole idea of pottery being political. Um, And I think that it most certainly is. And so um, going forward, I'm going to continue to make pots and get them in as many people's houses as I can um, and and try to just... um, make and surround myself with the things that um, I feel are important in this world. And, and through my work, hopefully um, those kind of sensibilities translate in the work that I make. So, um, so yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I do teach also, but I only teach part-time and but I also, since I've been doing this fabric, I really want to research the. Um, I really want to research the cotton industry as far as the textile uh, manufacturing and um, how to sort, how to be more responsible with sourcing that kind of stuff, um, and also um, looking to at designers. Like I was looking at a lot of um, companies that you know, have designers that design their fabrics and the majority of them, when you look at their page of designers, 
it's all uh, monochromatic. And so I'm really looking um, at companies that offer more diversity in kind of the, um, in, in their designers and their backgrounds. Um, the one that I've found so far, and I'm sure there's tons out there, um, but this company called Cotton and Steel, um, it's a West Coast company, and <clears throat> they really have a broad swath of, of um, designers. So I'm going to keep on, you know, researching that and trying to share that information, um, continue to make masks as, as needed. Um, but I know that I'm not going to make masks forever, <laughs> you know, um, but I am happy and really, I'm really taken that I can contribute in a way um, to the to the betterment of society, really, in, in these making of these masks. So, um, yeah, I think that's kind of yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to ask, I, I very much came to political activism through crafting. So, I, you know, knitting hats for the Women's March in 2017 and knitting welcome blankets for refugees and, and that's sort of how I came to it. But so much of that and so much of the, the community of fiber arts people that I'm with who are also, you know, very much political activists is very much about uh, sort of practical items uh, they may have a, a political meaning or a statement behind them, but but very much are sort of practical, like a mask that you wear or a hat that you wear or a sign that you carry in a particular march. So I wanted to sort of tease out a little bit, uh, Chatsani, you were talking about making things like place settings and, and Jen, now you're making these masks that are obviously very functional and how how that's sort of different in your mind when you do this kind of work, the the sort of you know, quote unquote, practical pieces uh, that are used in an everyday setting versus something that uh, might be more of a, a decorative statement kind of item. You know, what if you see a difference in sort of the way the, the political comes out in those? Well, I, I, my goal is to get the handmade in as many houses on it as I can. And I think um, making pieces that are functional and are practical is a great way to do that. Um, so that's kind of my take on, on that idea. I think for me, it's, it's minding the machine. Um, you know, so again, back into that idea of, of educating about, you know, every machine is based on some part of your body. Not the reverse. Um, and so I think it's it's calling people lazy when they're being aesthetically lazy. Um, you know, which is why i'm I'm okay with, you know, non-repeatable pieces, highly decorative um, as i'm as I'm maturing in age, I realize it's not my problem. <laughs> you know <laughs> one doesn't understand why my sugar jar is very small with an elaborate handle. Um, <laughs> you know you know, find your imagination. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that even the time period I spend a lot of time researching, I think things, you know, have been more ornate and and those things were more possible because there were less distractions, you know? And I think part of part of my activism and, and, and really it just happens in the classroom and in meetings, you know, I'm always, mm -hmm. it's not usually public the way I do it. And it's in my titles, and I always mm -hmm. calculate the right moment to say something to make sure that there are spoils in that in that that battle to say something. Mm -hmm. um, 
people have to start stepping up to the table. It's not just the artist, you know, who has to do all the work. Um, so I'd like to see a, a shift happen that way that folks, you know, as Jenna's talking about making conscious decisions that, you know, people recognize that in the mask that she makes, you know, versus the masks that come from, you know, who only knows where, you know. So I think for me, it's it's engaging. It's it's again, it's back to that cotton ball, why I don't change it. We need to stop seeing everything in the conclusion, you know, right. and begin to understand all the steps that got to that point. And one, maybe a last question and then lots of thank yous and we want you to share your website addresses and all of that. There will be information for those of you who are listening, we'll put lots of links on the website for you. But, you know, you're talking about how you're looking ahead and your commitment to teaching, your commitment to making and in both of your cases. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see your role as a, a, a role model, as a leader, as a woman with um, expertise and wisdom to share. You know, there are so many young women who uh, are artists, want to continue to be artists, need to figure out how to make a go of it. Um, you know, share with us your thoughts about what you say to the women you teach or the women you meet uh, about how to proceed in life as a woman artist with a political commitment as well. I, I think for me, the most telling moment or the most affirming moment was when Kamala said, I'm speaking. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've done that and it finally made me realize, I hope that some people are seeing that, realizing now mm -hmm. When I had to let folks know, you know, and I think students see me demonstrate that in terms of how I act, advocate for them, you know, mm -hmm. how I advocate for my discipline, you know, closed mouth doesn't get fed. I ask, um, you know, I follow through, you know, I want to show students, colleagues, peers, um, supporting when, you know, someone asks um, and sometimes not taking an honorarium, you know, that you're doing something because it's a conviction. It's not just for the the next step, you know. Um, and and I'm also aware I I do focus on my career as well. So I I show students there's a balance between the two. Everything's not a CV thing, and the CV is not always everything. Mm -hmm. And and, and that, again, that's back to Georgia Gilmore, right? You know, opening up her house, um, and she spoke to John F. Kennedy how she wanted to. I think she heard it before. <laughs> <laughs> in her own home and he still ate her food you know to sort of see that the way someone gave made people understand their their sense of humor their way of connecting with you um you know and, and always being being yourself i do my best not to code switch and and you know talk talk directly the same way all the time <laughs> but it takes practice <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, for me, it's really about kind of being in the trenches with the mm -hmm. students, you know, like really um, encouraging them, but also, you know, letting them know that it's, it's the work isn't easy. It's going to be hard. And 
There's going to be plenty of failures. And really, the more risk you take, the more rewards are going to come from that. So to really um, get them to push themselves, not only in the work that they make, but the choices that they make in life, right? Like not staying in the same town, um, trying to, you know, go experience something that's completely opposite from um, what they would normally, how they normally would find themselves. And um, my husband, for instance, runs a program in China um, through West Virginia University where he takes students every fall. Well, not this fall because of COVID, but every fall semester for almost 20 years, they've been going over to China and Jingdezhen and completely immersing themselves in that culture and just being able to give students that kind of global perspective, which... Uh, many of them never get a chance um, to take, I think is really important. And so I'm really glad that I can be here and really encourage and support those students to go on that trip and make that make that effort. And a lot of the people that go from this university, it's their first plane ride, you know, so it's like a big commitment for them. And um and I, and yeah, so, and I think, you know, living in the area that I live in, it's rural Appalachia. Um, and I'm learning a lot about the history here also, because I'm, I finally committed to being a resident forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so just kind of immerse, being able to immerse myself in that and, um, and understanding where my students are coming from too, you know, um, where I, I, where I didn't so much before. Um so I guess trying to put myself in their perspective, giving them a push to go do things that they haven't or might not have thought about doing before. Uh, yeah, that's really it. And how can everyone uh, find more of uh, both of your work? Um, my work is Jen Allen Ceramics. Uh, you can search me on Instagram. JenniferAllenCeramics.com is my website, um, but Instagram is a good first stop, and then you can link to my website from there. Yep, it's the same thing. Everything's my name. Um, yep. com, Chosani.org. I bought them all. <laughs> I'm speaking, I know right? on the planet, so. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you both so much. I think that on this this evening, Thanksgiving, it was a wonderful conversation about what what we can be thankful for, what we can think about going forward, what we can do together. So best wishes to you and to everyone who's listening. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Jen. Thank Thank you. you. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks. Happy Thanksgiving. The Vote Her In segment is a collaboration of Two Broads Talking Politics and author Rebecca Sive. Our theme song is called Are You Listening off of the album Elephant Shaped Trees by the band Immunuri, and we're using it with permission of the band. Our logo and other original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and was created for use by this podcast. You can contact us at Two Broads Talking Politics at gmail.com or on Twitter or Facebook at Two Broads Talk. You can find all of our episodes at twobroadstalkingpolitics.com or anywhere podcasts are found.